All right, guys. Um, open your Bible and find Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This morning, we're coming to um, one of the most important and probably well-known, hopefully well-known, uh, passages, not, not just in Philippians, though it is that, but I would say in the whole New Testament, the whole Bible, one of the most important passages in all of Christian theology, um, and I, I hope that you've had a chance to think over it yourself before you came. Many, uh, we're going to be in verses 5 through 11, many, many scholars uh, believe that this passage we, we're going to study was actually uh, a hymn of the early church. It was a song. And uh, it makes me think that so, so important were the truths that are in these verses um, that the early church said, we need to set this to meter and to music so that we can sing it, uh, so that we will always remember it. Because we remember easiest, and we remember best what we sing. Now, that's the reason why um, Brother Adam put so much thought, so much prayer, so much preparation into what we sing together when we gather as a church in our weekly church service. It's why we do the same in here. It's why anytime. Ian or one of the praise team members wants to introduce a new song to you, they don't just willy-nilly do it. We all think about it and say, uh, is, would this be a good one? To, to Not just is it singable, but we think about the truth that's in it. Because uh, what we sing, we've known this since we were kids, is how teachers teach kids. We know that what we sing, we know that what we listen to, uh, we know it's important because it catechizes us. It catechizes us whether we realize it or not. It's teaching us how to think, how to feel, and what to feel it about, right? And every time I, 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 I thought about, because there's, there's a few examples of this in the New Testament, of like, hey, that, we think that was an early hymn, just being one of them. I think, whenever I think about passages like this and the fact that it was that, I think of passages like Ephesians 5.19, where right after it says, you know, don't, don't get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, it says right after that, the, 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 the effects of that, and what it says in Ephesians 5.19 is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And um, that seems to describe antiphonal singing, antiphonal song. You're like, what is that? It's, it's, it's the singing back and forth to each other. It's like when you go to the Auburn football game and you're like, this side's Auburn, this side's Tigers, Auburn, Tigers. You know, that's antiphonal. That's antiphonal. And churches would often sing that way. And, and, and it, one side singing to the other and the other side responding in, we just kind of did that in, in, you know, in Is He Worthy? Ian singing to us and we reply, he is, right? That's antiphonal. And I think about passage like this one that we're going to consider this morning, that the early church may have sung this song here that way, just declaring these truths about Christ back and forth to each other and in song and, and in that way, not only just teaching each other, catechizing each other, but also admonishing each other and encouraging each other to live after his example full of his provision. Like I said, the passage we're going to look at is verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2. 
And as I said, I hope you've had a chance to read it yourself before coming. I'm a broken record on this, but you'll always get more out of it here when you do that and not just encountering it for the first time here. But before we read it, um, let's just remember some of the context that we've already seen in weeks prior, like what, what brought Paul to this point to say this, okay? Remember that the context that of verses 5 through 11 in chapter 2 really begins back in chapter 1 in verse 27, where if you look at the first part of, not the whole verse, but if you, if you look at the first part of chapter 1 verse 27, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We've often said that when, when, when he says, let your manner of life, that has the connotation of your life as a citizen, your, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ, meaning we're citizens of heaven through the gospel. Now live that way. That's the, that's the command. Like that is the one uh, command. Let your manner of life be this way. That's the command that really is going to govern the train of thought all the way into chapter 2, verse 18. Okay? That whole section is guided by live worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul, since he said that, has been fleshing out what does worthy mean. Because I can tell you to live worthy of the gospel of Christ, but then you're going to say, what does that look like? And you might come up with your own ways of what that might look like. And Paul's saying, this is what it looks like to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. And, and what, what has he said? Well, in the, in the last verses of chapter 1 after that, he's, he was fleshing out what worthy means this way. He, he first said, hey, church in Philippi, walking worthy of Christ and of his gospel looks like you guys, you local church, bearing witness to Christ together and, and, and standing standing for the truth of the gospel together, defending it against, against those who speak against it, uh, advocating it and, 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 and sharing it for those who need to hear, standing for the, and then suffering together, encouraging each other when you suffer for the gospel. Paul says, that's how you're living worthy in, in your witness to unbelievers. Well, then we saw when we came to chapter 2 that Paul hasn't left that topic altogether, but he has pivoted just a little bit. Because beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, um, he, he started talking about walking worthy of the gospel, um, but now turning the focus a little bit inward. So like walking worthy in, in how you church at Philippi, not just bear witness to Christ to outsiders, but how you live together with each other, how you live in harmony with each other, how you live in unity with each other. And Paul is arguing that that too bears witness to Christ. Um, uh, how believers in the church live and act toward each other. You can see that most clearly perhaps in its opposite. That when a church is full of discord and disunity and gossiping and slander and unkindness, how that bears false witness to Christ and his gospel of reconciliation. Right? That's the argument he's making. And in our passage today, Paul is still on that point about unity and harmony, but he's going to turn their attention to this early hymn which holds up Christ himself as their and our supreme, supreme example as well as the provider of all we need to walk in that way. What we're going to find in this passage is a good dose of truth about Christ and an admonition for us to follow the path that he set down for us by his example of humility. You might remember from last week 
that we mentioned humility is the most important ingredient to walking in harmony and unity. If you look in verse 3, he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And now he's going to hold up Jesus Christ as the greatest example of humility that mind could conceive. So let's read our passage, and then we'll dive in it, in it and see what we find. Uh, we'll begin in verse 5 and read through verse 11. So Paul writes, um, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our faith that this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we ask again that by your Holy Spirit, would you, would you give us eyes to see the truth about Christ in this most important passage. And would you not just give us eyes to see it, but minds to understand it very clearly and hearts to embrace what we learn about Christ here and then wills to obey the command that he's given um, to have the same mind among ourselves. Lord, uh, give me the help that I need to teach. And give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this passage, I suppose because it was a song, divides up pretty neatly for us to consider it. Uh, it divides up pretty neatly into three parts if you're taking notes. Um, so here's, here's what they're going to be, and then we'll walk through it. Uh, first, in verse 5, just verse 5 alone, um, Paul talks about the mind of Christ in verse 5. It's in that verse, verse 5, that we, we find the only command in this passage. Now, the, verse 5 shows us the only thing that Paul is telling us to do. Okay, and so we need to think about it. If we just look at verse 5 alone, though, there's only so much we can take away from it because he has fleshed, fleshed it out more in the, in the next point. So second point is going to be from verses 6 through 8 where Paul is going to describe the humility of Christ. Verses 6 through 8 is where you find some of the highest and best uh, theology about the person of Christ that you're going to find anywhere in Scripture. Um, these are very important verses and well worth your memorization either, even. Humility of Christ, verses 6 through 8. Then thirdly and finally, verses 9 through 11, Paul highlights the exaltation of Christ. And here... In these verses, Paul is still on the doctrine of Christ, but it's going to be important for us in these last verses to think, come back down and, and think about how can we relate that back to the primary point of this whole passage, which is motivating us to walk in, in the humility of, of Christ, the purpose of unity in Christ, the purpose of walking worthy of the gospel of Christ. How does, that, how does this relate to that? We'll get there. But let's dive into the passage now and think first about verse 5. In the mind of Christ. Again, we're not going to spend a ton of time here because really, as I said earlier, 
This point is just verse 5 alone, and verse 5 is kind of like the diving board to jump into the pool of the rest of the passage. And so, but we need to think about verse 5 because it's inspired of the Holy Spirit, and it does teach us something. As I said, this is where we find the first and only command in this passage. It's, it's, it's have this mind among yourselves. If you have the, the CSB, the Christian Standard, it says adopt the same attitude, which is that's a fine translation. Literally, it says think this. Think this. That's what it literally says. And, and you say, what, what, what can we take away from that command alone? Well, I think it's a good reminder and, and clarifier of something about ourselves. You know, we often say, that, especially as it, you know, if you don't have anything else to say around your tables, maybe think about these three questions. You know the three questions we say that are good to ask about any passage of Scripture. Any passage that you're reading, if you think of nothing else, you could say, what does this teach me about God or Christ? Secondly, what does it teach me about myself? And third, what does it command me to do? or admonish me to do, okay? And, and, and this verse right here is actually a, a good place where it has something to teach us about that second question. What does it teach me about myself? And it's because it says, think this, have this mind, this mindset, this attitude. And it clear, what, it, what I think what Paul's doing, it, it carries with it, if you just think about the command itself, it carries with it the assumption that what we think, the, 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 the mindset that we have is going to influence how we live. Um, that if we think a certain way, we will act a certain way. If we think a certain way, we'll live a certain way. That's the assumption behind the, the, the command, that our minds are our primary movers. Okay? If you've been around our college ministry for long enough, um, you've probably heard me share and commend the insights of James K.A. Smith and his wonderful book, You Are What You Love. If you've never read that book, I encourage you to buy that book and read that book, You Are What You Love. None of you are writing that down. Maybe one of you, You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. I have no idea what K.A. stands for. It's cool when somebody has two initials for a middle name. Anyway, in that book, You Are What You Love, the title kind of gives it away, but in that book, his contention is that we are not, to use his phrase, just brains on a stick. We're not just brains on a stick uh, uh, because how often, he says, do we know the right thing to do and we have a mind to do it, but we still don't do it, right? Um, how, how many times do we know we shouldn't, but we still do? <laughs> He's like, what, what, what's going on there? It happens all the time, and Scripture even talks about like that thing of Romans 7. He says, I knew, I knew the command said, do not covet, but then I saw myself coveting all over the place. I knew it, but I still did it, Right? And his point in, in You Are What You Love, his point there is, is to say our primary movers are not our heads but our hearts, right? That's our primary mover. We go where our hearts go. We do what our hearts want to do. We avoid what our hearts want to avoid, right? And he says in that book that the primary thing then that shapes what we do is not just changing our minds, it's changing our habits, he says, our habits form our hearts. 
you do something long enough and your heart will grow to love that thing, right? Um, and, there, and there is a lot of intuitive and demonstrable truth to that. But if you read that book carefully enough, Smith is, is not saying that your mind then is unimportant, that your mind has no role in it, um, that, because of course they do. Of course your mind is important, right? And Paul here, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says so. Think this so that you'll do this. So how does it work, right? Is Paul right and Smith is right? How do we put all those things together? It's because our heads are also connected to our hearts. It's not the primary mover, but it is connected to our hearts. You cannot grow to love what you do not know. You just can't do it. You can't grow to love something you don't know, and you need your mind to know what habits to form that then move your hearts in the right direction. All that to say, Paul is right. And the right starting point for having our manner of life be worthy of the gospel and walking in humility toward that end happens in our minds, he says, as we think the same thing, as we have the same mind, as we together adopt the same attitude. What mindset? What attitude? Some translations, like I'm reading from the ESV here, it says this mindset which is yours in Christ Jesus. Other translations say, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the difficulty comes in the way that Paul, in the original language, worded it. He left a word out that translators now have to guess based on the context of what he does say. And it's a big debate on which, on which of those options is right, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which was also in Christ Jesus. And like a lot of those debates, there's a lot of truth in both of them, Right? I, I do believe the most certain option is have this mind among yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus because I think that does stick most closely to what he says here and it fits the context of what he's saying. He has commanded humility in verse 3 and now he's holding up Christ as the supreme example in verse 5 and he's saying you be humble because he too was humble. He also was humble. But the other option, which we, as we have it here in the ESV, which is yours in Christ Jesus, it, that, that translation is taking its primary cue from that last phrase, in Christ Jesus. Paul says, in Christ Jesus. And it's thinking about how does Paul usually use that phrase, in Christ Jesus, and phrases like it. Think, for example, Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul almost always uses in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Him. He uses that phrase to talk about blessings that believers have from Christ because we're united to Him by faith, right? Provision that we have that he earned and he grants to us by faith in him. And, it's, and so it's here it's the assumption that Paul is consistently using that phrase in Christ Jesus the same way here. So this mindset, it's, it's not just something you got to muster up. It's also yours in Christ Jesus because you're in him. I don't think we have to, to choose between the options here necessarily because they're both true. And perhaps it was kept fuzzy for us for a reason. But the end result is this, yes, 
When you are aiming to be humble toward your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are having the same mindset which was also in Christ Jesus. And because you are in Him by repentance and faith, He also empowers you to have that mindset. This is a command in verse 5. And in the new covenant, the Lord always grants provision to us for the things that He commands and expects from us. So essentially, there's no excuse. Be humble. You know, this disunity and disharmony is a result of a lack of humility on one side or the other or both. And for that, there is no excuse because you're in Christ Jesus. But Paul doesn't leave it to their imagination to guess what humility looks like. Christ is our example of that. And so in verses 6 through 8, Paul takes a deep dive into the humility of Christ, which we need to turn our attention to now. So the last words of verse 5 are Christ Jesus, and the first word of verse 6 is who. So he's about to describe the humble mindset of Jesus, and every word, every phrase of these verses are important. He begins with this phrase, who, though he was in the form of God. Now, the word the word translated form right there is the Greek word morphe, morphe. Um, it's where we get our word metamorphosis, right? Somebody's going to morph into something. Like that's the word there, morphe. And, 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 and you think metamorphosis, what's, a, what's the best example of like metamorphosis? Like a caterpillar morphs into a butterfly, Right? meaning the nature of it completely changed, right? Uh, it, 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 what it is completely changed. It, the, the, it was caterpillar, now it is butterfly. So when Paul says Jesus was in the form, the morphe of God, he is saying that Jesus is by nature God. This is a place where the New Testament very explicitly calls Jesus God, right? Um, but what point is Paul making here? What did Jesus as God, that's where it's setting you up. Jesus is God. What did Jesus as God do? Well, it, if you keep reading, the next phrase is, it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, I really, really don't want all of these talks through Philippians to be all about Greek. I, I don't. But there are times like this when you just really have to, if you're going to understand what he says. Um, because honestly, if you just take the English as it is, can be a little misleading. Because if you just read your English Bible here, it sounds like it sounds like equality with God is something that he's still not in possession of. Because it's something he's grasping at. It's something he's still reaching for and grasping at. And that would lead you to, to wondering a lot of things, none of which are either A, orthodox, or B, helpful to understand this passage. The thing is Paul has just said that Jesus was in the form of God. So what does this phrase mean? He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's hard because some Greek words 
then they don't have neat and tidy equivalents in English, right? And so you just have to, a whole phrase is used to try to translate one little measly word that, was, that had a lot of depth of meaning. And the key, the key word we need to know here is, is the one word that we've translated as a thing to be grasped. A thing to be grasped is, is translating one single solitary word. That's trying to translate just one word. Uh, yeah, Paul used in, in, in the best way we can. And I don't think as a thing to be grasped, that's not wrong, it's, but it's, it's incomplete. It's more than that, okay? And if you translated all of it, it would make it a very awkward sentence in English. This is why they left it the way it is. The word that Paul used there carries the connotation of someone who holds, grasps something and holds on to it and uses it for their own advantage. That's, I mean, that's a heavy word in Greek, but that's what, it, that's what it's talking about. The, 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 the something, uh, it, and by the way, it's the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. It's something, who, who, someone who possesses something and uses it for their own benefit, for their own advantage. It's like someone who has a lot of money and uses it to buy favors, to buy political influence or something like that. They have something and they're using it for their own advantage, right? So when you understand that connotation of the word that Paul used, now look at the phrase again. He didn't use equality with God as a thing to be held on to and used for his own advantage. That's what it's saying here. Now... Understood that way, equality with God is not something he's grasping for or striving for. It's something he already possesses fully. But what's noteworthy is that he never used his equality with God for his own advantage. That's what it's saying about Jesus here. What did he do instead? Verse 7 says, he emptied himself. That's literally what it says. He emptied himself. But if you don't read the rest of the verse very carefully, you could wind up with a heresy because there is a heresy called kenotic, kenotic Christology from the word kenao, which means to empty out. And that heresy holds that Jesus emptied himself of his deity when he became a man. He put it, at the very least, he put his deity on pause uh, and he was merely a man on this earth. That, that's, not, that's not how he emptied himself, guys. Like, that's a heresy. Don't do that. Just keep reading the verse. How did he empty himself? It says, he emptied himself, verse 7, he emptied himself by taking. That's a very important word. How did Jesus empty himself? Not by divesting himself of anything, but by taking something else upon himself. It, it, it was, it, it's subtraction by addition, Right? He didn't let go of anything about his nature. He took on another one, which was what? The form of a servant. There's that word form again, morphe. He took the nature of a servant. And it says being born uh, in the likeness of men. Verse 8 says being found in human form. There's that word again, morphe. So what it's saying is, Jesus is eternally the form and the nature of God, but he took on, when he was born, when he was born, he took on 
the, the, the form and the nature of a human being. He is the God-man. Not half God, half man, part God, part man, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. As Brother Al used to say, as much God as if he were not man, as much man as if he were not God. Right? Fully God, fully man. He is the God-man. And Paul's point here is that though he was by nature God, when he took on our human nature voluntarily, he chose to live within the limits of our human nature. And certainly at times, as a man, certainly at times his deity showed forth when he walked on water, when he commanded the wind and the waves to stop, and they did. Sure, but he, you'll, you'll read the Gospels in vain to try to find a place where he did that kind of thing for his own advantage, right? Uh, he, he always did this for the benefit of other people. And he really and truly took our nature. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He got sleepy. He felt grief. He felt pain. He felt betrayal. He was tempted in every way as we are. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Paul says in verse 8 that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That, the thing that should shock us about that statement is not just the extent to which Jesus would unfailingly obey the law and will of God, but that he would even suffer death death in the first place. I mean, we're talking about God who took our flesh, died. I mean, let that one just marinate for a second, and then let it go even here, even death on a cross. A shameful death, being counted among sinners as if he were one. Yeah, uh, not, not just the idea of, not, it wasn't just a man to die on a cross is shameful, but how you died on a cross was shameful. Often those who uh, were victims of dying on a cross were stripped of their clothes while they died. And in, in, the, in, the, in movies and, and, and pictures and things, you, you think that the cross is way up high, you know, but just think about it. Think about they they offered Jesus a, a, a sponge on a hyssop branch, which isn't very long. They could reach him. Jesus was not way up there removed. He was sort of way down here, right in your face, dying. Right? They could just lift their arms above their own heads and reach his. And, and it's just just Jesus was very close, naked, suffering to the people who were not just weeping, but mocking him and spitting on him. This was God willingly taking this flesh and nature of ours and the shame that we deserve on himself for the eternal good and salvation of sinners. That is humility beyond degree. It, if, if it doesn't strike you that way, you need to dwell a little further on the nature and glory of the eternal God and the shame of the cross 
and of your sin and mine. Jesus, Jesus told those who were arresting him, do you not think that I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? Do you remember that Jesus told Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you by my Father? And Jesus told his disciples, I lay down my life of my own accord. Whenever we're in a position to fight the impulse of our pride, and you're like, man, I've just, I really got to suck it up and lower myself and be humble, and I got to do the thing that I don't want to do, you're never going to go as low as Jesus went. Receiving what he didn't deserve to give us what we don't deserve. Paul says, have this same mindset. Adopt this same attitude. Man, the church would be a happy place if all of us loved each other with that kind of humility. Peter says that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in, in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Mm. Paul finishes this great passage on the humility of Christ to remind us also of the exaltation of Christ. I believe not only to paint a more vivid picture of the depths of Christ's humility, but also to show us the joy that awaits ahead for those who believe in Christ and follow in his footsteps. So Paul says in verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, because Jesus went low for our salvation, because he finished that lowly work, God highly exalted him. Now let's remember who the him is. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Who is he? This is important because it, the he here now is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The God-man. It's not hard to imagine that God exalted God. He exalted the God-man. He, he exalted our human nature, exalted us. He took on our flesh, and so it's him in our flesh that was highly exalted, which means as our substitute, as our representative, he is blazing the trail for our glory too in the future. That's what he's doing. But Jesus receives a glory that will never fully be ours, of course, because Paul says his name alone is the name that is above every name. In other words, there's no one greater. So that at his name, every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. In heaven, yes. On earth, yes. Isaiah says, even those who were incensed against him. And under the earth. C.S. Lewis liked to say, he was in trying poetically to describe the unflinching rebellion of sin and the hard-heartedness of sin. C.S. Lewis liked to say that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Like, as if to say, sinners are so sinful that they're not, God isn't locking us in, we're locking him out. That kind of thing. Um, well, um, 
rebellious as sinners may be, they will still bow. And Paul says they will all confess as well that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it says to the glory of God the Father. That isn't to say that Jesus is less than the Father in any way, but it was the Father's will that the Lord Jesus carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit, and so all glory goes to the Father as well. Christ doesn't receive glory apart from the Father. What does that mean for us? We will share in the vision of that glory. The early church used to talk about what they called the beatific vision. It's the blessed vision, right? We will, we will share in that vision of what He's earned for us and the fruits of what Christ has earned for us if we've repented and believed. Right? If we have repented and believed and we bear the fruit of that repentance by walking worthy of His gospel in how we humbly love each other, following His example, um, we will share in that future that He has gone ahead before us to prepare. What a song to sing in church. <laughs>